You are listening to a live audio recording of Technology 2016, a panel discussion examining how the newest technologies and data are revolutionizing campaign strategies. Technology 2016 was sponsored by the Capital Weekly and RTBIQ and was recorded on March 24th, 2016 in Sacramento. So I think we're in for a very interesting evening, and you have some interesting panelists uh, led by Scott Lay. I'm sure all of you here know Scott. Uh, Scott has started multiple websites and emails and other things related to California politics, including Around the Capitol and the Nooner. Many of you may not know he also started uh, the Roundup many a year ago, and we wrestled it away from him and stole it from him fair and square. And... uh, so he will be your, your master of ceremonies this evening. And we will have time for audience questions. And with that, I think we're good. The restrooms are in the back, off to the right. We will uh, we'll go ahead and get started. And again, I'll turn this over to Scott Lay. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, thanks very much to all of our panelists, who I will let Scott introduce. Well, thank you, Tim and uh, John Howard, uh, my good friends that run, and Kathy Brown that run Capital Weekly. Um, you know, one of the endeavors that's actually surviving in California capital politics uh, when so many newspapers have kind of withdrawn their support. So uh, this is a great evening. Uh, It's an interesting evening uh, for those of you following the news on news and and public media. Uh, On Sunday, uh, The Good Wife had an episode that was like focused on, you know, the targeting of a Google-like company of voters and whether that was ethical or not, you know, to use search data in targeting. Uh, And then today, Politico had an article about uh, the Republican National Convention and uh, the targeting that is being used and the data collection that's being used to track delegates. So, I mean, this is a very... Uh, present topic uh, that that we're facing uh, right here. So, I'm pleased to be joined by uh, some some great stars in in California elections. Uh, Blent uh, Blackaby, who is uh, a technology guru uh, and gives us the, the, some of the greatest insight in technology and elections. Uh, Richard Loudon, who is the CEO of RTBIQ, uh, the the sponsor of this event, uh, which is focused on targeted advertisements uh, toward voters uh, in elections, something that's very important. Paul Mitchell, who, as vice president of Political Data Inc., provides the data for people uh, like Richard to target voters and you know with you know one of the greatest data models in the state uh, and in the country uh, of voter uh, data and I remember when I first got involved in politics getting you know database for downloads from PDI and having to import them into access <laughs> so They've come a long ways, if, if you know them. Uh, my friend Matt Rexroad, who's a uh, Yolo County supervisor and also uh, a founding partner of Meridian Pacific, a Republican consulting firm, uh, uh, will also be with us. And Minnie Centillon, 
who is a elections expert that was with the California Voter Registration Project uh, and is now uh, working, I think, freelance. Are you still with the assembly? I don't <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> so it's it's a great team that we have here tonight, and we'll just start off, and I'll start to my right with, with Matt for some opening comments. We'll move down uh, the table. Uh, we'll take questions kind of in the middle. We won't wait until the very end to take questions. Uh, so we'll start with Matt. Um, well, thank you. Um, as a political consultant in my, my firm, Radio Pacific, we tend to run races in California, but we also have operations in Omaha and out in Virginia and, and in the um, Northwest. But one of the things that's been um, for for general political consultants is it seems like every two years, right about now, people start wanting to make appointments to sell me their newest thing that does something better than anyone else ever has. And the hard part about that is, is that we're really... Oh, stop it, Paul. (laughs) Paul keeps coming by. I'm like, just go ride your bike someplace else. I don't really need that right now. Um, Just go get lost in El Dorado County. Um, But it's it's difficult because, you know, for, for me right now, I'm just turning the corner to start getting an execution mode for a lot of my clients who are running in the June primary. So it's, it's, it's a struggle for me when people come in and say, hey, I got the newest... I got the newest mousetrap, I can do this because we're already executing. And it makes me question whether people actually understand kind of what we do in the, in, in the world of politics because we're, we're kind of in go time. And only somebody would have to give me a really compelling reason why I would need to switch because I'm in execution mode to go out and, and switch something or try to change something up at the last minute here because we've been planning our campaigns. Most of my clients have been clients for six or eight months now, and it's time for us to go. And so... I always um, I enjoy meeting people. I enjoy seeing them. But if you're trying to get an appointment with me 60 days before an election, it's not the time where I'm going to be switching stuff over and figuring out a new way to be able to do things. Uh, we have a pretty standard um, – I shouldn't say standard. We have a pretty um, tested way of doing things, and eventually we work with – we have a couple of people on my, my team that be, are able to put things together. And we're going to be talking about – we have you know Paul here and the folks who do the digital advertising – the, the other part that I think technology has changed things dramatically for me anyway is the ability to be able to now not be able to hide as a candidate. I think 15 years ago, you could actually have candidates running for the legislature or even Congress that you could just send them away to Hawaii for the election cycle, and then and sometimes that'd be, they'd be better off there, yes. uh, right? You but, wish. <laughs> but, but, now, but now the ability for, through social media and other things that people look at, there is an expectation that they're there and engaging on a regular basis with the issues. And so you don't have the ability to hide as a candidate as much anymore to take advantage of things. And for me, the use of technology over the last 10 years has actually shaped the kind of clients that I'd like to work with. Because if you don't have the ability to be able to be authentic and be able to convey a message and know what you believe – it's awfully hard for me to help you as a political consultant to be able to amplify your voice to those targeted audiences. And so those are just some opening comments. I'm sure we'll get into more later on. But I would think technology has helped us in the way we targeted voters. It helps the mediums we deliver. But also on the back end, you've, you've, you know, the client only gives you so much clay to work with. And I'm looking for people that have a lot of ability to be able to communicate in the different models. So. Oh, thank you, Matt. And by the way, um, I'm, my uh, casual attire is because – 
organ plays at 6.55 p.m. So, Go Ducks. You know. <laughs> so we'll be done by then, right? Go Ducks. We're definitely going to be done. You know? They're on the clock. Duke is gone. <laughs> Paul. Uh, thanks for having me here today. Um, I'm Paul Mitchell. I'm vice president of political data and also owner of Redistricting Partners. Um, a lot of what I do is work with the voter file itself indirectly. And... Um, you know, it's interesting if you look back at the history of voter data systems. Um, the national way that voter files have been created versus the way that voter files have been created in California is very different. Um, nationally, data is partisan. That's something that doesn't make sense to a lot of people in California. But nationally, uh, there is the Democratic silo of voter files that have been created just for use by the Democrats and progressives. and if you're not friendly with them, you can't use it or whatever it is. It's like owned by the system. And then there's a Republican silo of a voter file that is used by conservatives and, and Republicans. And there's this huge kind of distrust uh, with campaigns and politicos and staffers uh, everywhere outside of California. But in California, we have political data that has been around for uh, decades. We're actually next year going to be celebrating 30 years. And political data was born out of a bunch of Democratic and Republican staffers who in the 70s and 80s, when you were starting your congressional campaign, would literally fly into your district, go to the county, get your file, put it into an access database on your home computer or on your campaign computer, build the thing so that you could produce a walk list and a mail file, and you know, 72 hours later whatever, they would bail, and you'd be left with your voter file. And it would never change. It would never get updated. It would just be your voter file, and that's what you'd work with. And uh, a number of these people got together and said, this is crazy. Let's create a statewide voter file. And so Democratic and Republican staffers essentially came together and created PDI. And in, at, the, at its inception, PDI was a Burbank-based business that's only property was a uh, um, basically like a motorhome on the Warner Brothers lot. And PDI rented servers, time on servers, from midnight to 6 a.m. every night on the Warner Brothers servers to be able to run orders. So all day they would code, and at night two guys would go and put those codes in the computer, wait until 6 in the morning, and whatever labels or sheets came out, that was what campaigns were going to use to run their campaigns uh, that day. So in the last you know, 30 years, it's developed, but PDI in California and the culture that we have around political campaigns and data in California, we're very lucky to have a very rich voter file. And that's probably the biggest thing in what I deal with in the data world that differentiates us from everywhere else in the country where data is really bad. And it really puts a nail on this. When Matt said that every time he gets started in campaigns, he'll have vendors come with like, oh, here's my new shiny little project I created that I want you to run all your campaigns with. I get the opposite. I get candidates or consultants coming to me and saying, oh, my God, I read this article about what Obama did. I want to do what Obama did. And they come with this concept that, like, there's some shiny new trick that they haven't done yet or that nobody's ever Actually, figured out Actually, I get out those yet. calls, too, from my clients. So I just send them to you. So that's, okay, well, that's why I get them. <laughs> and and I just, just to put in context, the Obama stuff 
and all the fancy things that you hear about with modeling and you know Hillary and Bernie fighting over who stole whose models or whatever it is, all of that stuff, it's really not that fancy and, and not that essential to every campaign. For the most part, what Obama did in 2008 and what campaigns continue to do nationally and get a lot of credit for is doing the basics well, meaning if you're running a campaign and you've got field organizers over here and they're out knocking on doors, in the old days, the, the information they learned would stay with the field organizers and you'd hire a fundraising team and the fundraiser would fundraise and then whatever they learned about voters, it would stay with them and their context would just be the context they've always been scouring. And the mail program guys would just run their mail programs. But what Obama's campaign did, which was like somehow ingenious, was bringing these things together using data so that when field contacts are being done, they're informing the mail program, that those field contacts are informing the volunteer program, that the volunteer and field programs are inf in informing the fundraising program, the fundraising. If you've got somebody who's donating $250 to your campaign and your campaign's not contacting them to become a volunteer, then there's a failure. And so doing the basics right is a lot of what has been a major improvement using technology in campaigns. It's just, it doesn't seem as sexy, but it's just doing the basics right. And the second thing that technology has allowed us to do nationally that doesn't necessarily apply to every campaign in California is it has really helped us work in an environment where data sucks. If you're running in a state, if you're in a campaign in a state where they don't maintain partisanship on the voter file, and you're lucky to get the person, the voter's name and their age, okay? Now I want you to build me a model that tells me which of these voters are probably Democrats and which of them are probably Republicans. If, uh, there's a, if you're in a state where they don't maintain the vote history of whether you participated in primaries or caucuses, and now we're running this caucus, my whole presidential campaign relies on being able to turn out people for a primary or a caucus, and there's no, and the party, instead of the state, maintain that vote history, then yeah, please, 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 please make me a model to help me determine how in the world to turn those voters out. If you transported me to this chair, and it was pitch black in this room, and it caught on fire, make me a model to get me the F out of here. But you don't have to make me a model to get out of here now because the door is right there and I know where it is. So models in this kind of uh, allowing you to make up for problems with the data and make up for inefficiencies and, and the deficiencies of, of what campaigns have, that stuff's super important in so many parts of the state. But the idea that a campaign that's running in California needs all these bells and whistles is, you know, just a little bit wrong. I, I had a campaign call me saying they're running a campaign in San Jose, Asian candidate versus Latino candidate, about half the city, half the district's Asian, about half the district's Latino, and they wanted a model. And I was like, you do not need a model to run that campaign. Um, <laughs> what you need is right there on the voter file. Um, so what I'm essentially saying is that uh, the technology that we've helped develop in the voter file and all of that is super solid and in California we're really lucky to have that kind of access to data. The most important thing that you should be thinking about when you're working with technology is how does this allow me to do the kind of thing that I already know I need to be doing but doing it well. And if uh, you know there's a shiny new object you've got to make sure that it's something that you actually need not something that's just being uh, sought after because it's new and fancy. Um, and happy to go into details as we get into more conversation. Thank you, Paul. And Richard. 
Uh, so I'm the shiny new object guy. Uh, and I'm going to be popular here tonight, I can tell already. Well, you bought the drinks, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the genesis of, of this meeting was really to start opening up the um, 80 quarter, basically, coming from Silicon Valley all the way out here to Sacramento. <clears throat> and I think it's important because we get lost. Right? We get lost in our own BS. We're out there. We're busy literally hacking away on code all night long trying to come up with ways that we're going to solve the world's problems. We've done a pretty good job in, in some respects. Um, I think in the communication of how do you take these very sophisticated tools that we've built and apply them to the political arena, um, I think, quite frankly, we've fallen down. Um, and I think we've fallen down because, to your point, uh, we forget what those, what the basics are, right? What are the building blocks that you are trying to accomplish as political consultants, as people who are trying to tell a story for a campaign, um, trying to sell, tell a story for a candidate, candidate, et cetera? And just to really quickly give you a little bit of my background, why, why I think I'm able to speak to this and, and hopefully help to bridge this world, is I've never written a single line of code in my entire life. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk to you about JavaScript or Python or C++ or any of these crazy things. In fact, when my, uh, uh, when my engineers is here, when my data scientist, he can talk to you all day long about it. Um, first half of my career was actually spent in television. Second half was spent in digital. So, you know, I, I think some candidates still spend a little bit of money in television. Um, and I get it. Right? It's a fantastic way to tell a story. Best way to tell a story? One-to-one, -one, in person. No doubt about it. That's why you have people knocking on doors. Best way to tell a story at scale? Television. Right? Without a doubt. Sight, sound, motion, emotion. And then, of course, you look at, you look at the political advertising landscape, and you keep running into... We don't, does anybody have a direct mail piece with them right now? No? I'll use this. Right? Piece of paper. Direct mail. Lands in, your, uh, lands in your mailbox, if you pay enough attention to it as you're walking it to your recycle bin, you'll understand that uh, you're actually trying to be targeted. But, right, what does direct mail do? Direct mail provides an avenue where you can, using data such as your companies, really precisely target people using fantastic sources of data, whether it's first-party data, second-party, third-party, right, all sorts of crazy definitions of what that means. Um, Voter files, modeling, I don't really care. The point is you can slice and dice an audience very precisely and through direct mail reach them. Now, what's the shiny new thing that we've come up with? This little thing, right? Does anybody not have one of these in their pockets right now? So what, is, what does this thing bring to the table? In my mind, very strong point of view on this, obviously, it's the best of both worlds. We can bring, we can leverage all of the data that you can possibly get your hands on to do proper targeting, right? Then, of course, the other thing that this wonderful device does is it connects us to the Internet. And what are we as voters doing on the Internet? We're watching a crap load of video, right? Best way to tell a story? Through video. But come on, I'm a TV guy, old TV guy. <laughs> There's no way that I'm going to pay attention to a video that's shown on a screen this size when I have my big, huge TV screen, right? Impossible. There's this tiny little company, 
based in America called Walmart. And they did a study. And their hypothesis was, we're going to take our exact same commercial, run it on television, run it on mobile, and we're going to bet that television's going to blow up mobile. Right? We, all these ridiculous people like RTBIQ who keep knocking on our door trying to sell us the shiny new widget, we're going to make them go away with research. And we're going to show them that tried and true television kicks mobile's butt. Well, they found out the opposite. And the funny thing about Walmart is they actually have the courage to change the way that they behave. So they're now going deep into this tiny little screen. And what they found was, and still I found a little unbelievable, is when people are watching this tiny little screen here, they're actually focused on it, right? So all that money and all that research that you spent trying to tell your great story actually gets paid attention to, which is pretty darn amazing. So as a shiny new widget guy, I apologize. i got to fire my salespeople. Um, I just want to make sure that we're opening the doors for you guys and helping to bring a human translation of what all this newfangled technology means and how you can actually make it actionable in your day-to-day work. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it reminds me of the days that Paul and I were doing politics down in Orange County and going through the mail, uh, the trash bins at the post offices to find out which mail pieces had been mailed out. And right. I, I, don't, I don't think that you find iPhones in there with you know, videos <laughs> on them. <laughs> It's a a very different world. Uh, With that, we'll move on to Minnie. Uh, First of all, I want to thank Capital Weekly and um, RTBIQ for inviting me as a panelist. And um, I want to say I'm going to agree with Mr. Ruxrode about his comments about the shiny new objects. And I found a couple of interesting things. I've been doing campaigns for about 20 years now. And so I was out working on campaigns when you used a Thomas Guide. Oh, yeah. yeah right. To figure yes. out <laughs> what yeah. is the precinct God of life. Bless the and so, G- G15. I've yeah. started a copy machine copying Thomas <laughs> guys. <laughs> and and I like the boxes. Yeah. And, and, those are, and, those are and Scott, we're, we're still digging through the trash um, on, on, in our campaigns. As, as uh, technology evolves, I think the big question is, uh, how does it integrate with campaigns? I've had uh, clients... Uh, both older and younger, I have to explain to my my clients that are 60 and over the importance of earned media and Twitter and Facebook, and you should just see the look on their face of loss. Um, but, but, you know, they do get it after a while. And then I have younger clients that um, are really exciting about the, the shiny new object. And I was talking to this digital guy, and he said he can make, you know, 50,000 impressions. And I said, but are they to voters? You know, because there's a big difference. So, you know, the clients here, then as consultants, we have to kind of bring them down back to earth and explain to them, first of all, you have limited funds where you can put your money. And, you know, given the funds that you have, how do you stretch that dollar to make actual contact with the voter? And so I think we're going to have a great discussion about that here today. Also, um, there's a changing face of of demographics in the state and in this country. Uh, That changing face looks a lot like me. Uh, women and um, and so how do we reach out to women? Because one of the things that I have noticed when I do these uh, district profiles for clients is that in a lot of these districts, women outvote men by at least ten percent. 
And so I wouldn't be a good panelist if I didn't tell all the women in this in this room to go read an article. It's in New York Magazine's February 22nd edition, and it talks about how sing, single women are the new potent political force in America. And so uh, bedtime reading for you. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's... Uh, I'm excited to be here and participate um, as a female and also as a person of color because one of the, again, uh, fastest growing demographic of voters are Latinos and other minority groups. And, and I think that the way that we have engaged them traditionally isn't working and we could tell. Um, there's the, you know, there, there's two, two questions in hand and I think now that we have DMV doing registration, we've removed a hurdle. But the bigger question at hand is why aren't they going to the polls? And so my, my thought is that we need to uh, really change the way that we've traditionally gone to people and get them to the polls. And maybe what we need to do in Latino households is incorporate it into their culture, have them uh, register to vote by mail where they could do it at home. Because a lot of people are not like us at, in this room or at this table. They don't talk politics. They don't think politics. They have kids to shuffle uh, between soccer and gymnastics and um, that that pamphlet they get, my business partner and I always call it the five second rule. They're only gonna look at it five seconds before they toss it in, in the trap. Thank you very much. Uh, Brent? Great. Um, I'll make just a couple points and then I know we'll get to some questions. Um, Brent Blackaby, I'm a partner at Trilogy Interactive. Uh, we do, um, we're digital strategy consultants for uh, public affairs clients, nonprofit clients, and political campaigns. Um, we're doing a number of um, California statewide initiatives this year, um, digital infrastructure, digital communications and fundraising. Uh, we also do Senate and gubernatorial races across the country. Um, we cut our teeth in the 2003-2004 presidential cycle. Uh, I was managed online fundraising for Wes Clark's campaign for president. I don't know how many of you remember General Clark, but uh, we had a really awesome few months and then kind of a <laughs> crash, crash. And then Iowa happened uh, and everything went, went. But it was an amazing experience and it was sort of in that experience that I kind of set uh, to doing this, this work. It was the same primary as, as Carrie and, and, um, and Dean and Edwards and a lot of, a lot of folks who are doing a lot of innovation in the, in the space. So we've worked with a lot of folks. Senator Boxer was our first client. That was her 2004 re-election race. And so we've been working with her. Um, we did Elizabeth Warren's 2012 race on the digital consulting side. Um, so I've seen a lot and done a lot and sort of have some things to sort of talk about. And I want to make two main points that sort of echoes some things we might have already heard. Um, one is, you know, a big part of our job when we, when, we, when we talk to clients and sort of give clients advice on how to manage their digital programs, it's balancing the tried and true, the old school digital stuff, which has been around for 10 years, um, with the new innovative um, tactics, techniques, things that are coming out of Silicon Valley, uh, how we can kind of bring those into political campaigns and make, make, make the best use of them, and finding the right balance. We don't want to abandon the things that have been working just to sort of go after the shiny object. At the same time, there's a lot to be gained from the shiny object. And so we have to balance sort of what works with sort of the innovation with, with, with what we want to try. So let me just give you a couple examples. Um, how many people remember MySpace, right? Uh, good thing we didn't bank everything on the MySpace strategy, right? Because we would be, you know, how many people remember like my Barack Obama? Right, which is this whole like people have their own create their own personal social networks. There was a company called Ning that did this a lot, and there was a there was a whole period of time where everybody needed to have their own Ning site, right? Because I needed to create my own social network where my people would want to come and congregate. Well, it so happens that's not exactly the behavior that people want. People people go where other people are. 
What's great about Facebook is it's a huge, massive social network with lots of um, uh, activity, lots of uh, ability to reach people and connect with people. Uh, and so rather than trying to create my own walled garden on my own campaign website and getting people to come to my place, let's go where all the people are, right? And so there are just things that, like, there are all these innovations. Some work, some don't work, and you have to sort of separate that out. Uh, I'll give you another kind of example along those lines. A couple of weeks ago, I was um, speaking with... Uh, couple dozen undergraduates at the Institute of Politics at Harvard. And we were talking about the presidential campaign this year. And I said, if you're thinking about the digital operation for like Hillary Clinton or for Bernie Sanders or for any of the Republican candidates, where do you think most of those digital staffers are spending their time? And so one woman raised her hand and they said, well, I think Snapchat for sure, right? There've got to be a bunch of people doing Snapchat, right? Because that's where, that's what I'm doing. That's what's, you know, and sure. And absolutely. I mean, there's some innovation and we're really curious to find out how we can use Snapchat to reach certain segments. Other people were like, well, you need to, you know, we got a bunch of people doing Instagram. There's got to be people doing Instagram. And absolutely, there are people doing Inst Instagram. That's important. Facebook, absolutely. Doesn't but it took a lot of, like, we talked about this for five minutes, and finally I said, well, have you ever thought about, you know, email? Uh, what do you think about email? And they're like, oh, you know, that's, that's old. That's not where people are. And that's true from their perspective. But if you want to know why Bernie Sanders and why Hillary Clinton are raising so much money online, it's because they have amazing email programs. And email is still driving a gad ton of online revenue. It's not Facebook to some, I mean, Facebook is great for some things, but it's not about raising money. Snapchat is great for some things, it's not about raising money. Uh, the mother's milk of politics is still money, and when it comes to online fundraising, it's still about email. So there are just some things like, you know, so when we, when we talk to clients, it's like, Yes, there is innovation, and we should be going after innovation, finding out how to do, people, do things better, find people better, but we also can't forget about the basic building block, blocks that it takes to, do, to run a good digital program, and email is one of those things. So that's sort of one set of things. That's consistent, I think, with what, what, what we've all been saying. Um, a second piece is, again, it, isn't always, it is not just about the technology. It is about the message. Um, and technology is, is a way of sort of reaching people with, with the right person, the right time, with the right message, the right channel, with the right mechanism for responding. That's the great thing about technology. Um, but you can have an amazing candidate uh, and crappy technology and fall down, or you can have a terrible candidate and amazing technology and fall down. Like, it's like, you know, you need to sort of combine all that together to have a really successful digital operation. I would used to say on the, on the Elizabeth Warren campaign in 2012, you know, we could have screwed a lot of stuff up, you know, and still had an amazing campaign because she was, is such an amazing messenger with such an amazing message. And, uh, you know, our job as digital uh, consultants and strategists was just making sure we had enough digital buckets to kind of just pick up all of the money and all of the support, right, that was coming because she is so amazing and so compelling. Um, we still had to do things in a smart way. We had still to be economical about how we spent money, where we put our resources. But, um, you know, the technology was a conduit of connecting people to a candidate with a message that they really cared about. And so we were never so uh, <laughs> enamored of our own skills that we thought it was all about us, because it was really about Elizabeth Warren, and the technology was just facilitating that. And I think that's easy for some of us. You know, we, can, we all get lost in the technology because the technology is amazing, but it's still fundamentally about right candidate, right message, right time, and the, the technology is, is a glue that makes a lot of those connections possible that it may not have been possible. Um, in the past. So I'll stop there and look forward to the conversation. Well, Minnie, I really appreciated when you were talking about kind of the micro-targeting that's possible now. And in 2010, during the Proposition 30 campaign, uh, I was the CEO of the Community College League. And, 
you know, for a few hundred bucks, we were able to target a very specific cohort on Facebook of college students in California that before wouldn't have been possible. The LA Times went on to say that that may have been one of the reasons that Prop 30, you know, had an unexpected victory. Um, and, you know, that's one of those things that we can see now. So, you know, we'll, we'll open up for some questions now, but micro-targeting, I think, is, is very important uh, and, and only possible with the data, data that we have now and the tools. I mean, I didn't have data. I mean, it was Facebook that had the data. And just to elaborate on that a little bit, and I think maybe to bring the conversation a little bit full circle with the kind of conversations that Matt and I were having from the old school side to the new tech side, um, a lot of what's actually making the difference right now in campaigns with everything that we're talking about is bridging together the different universes. So when people were doing Facebook ads you know, years ago or when people were doing uh, online ads years ago, one of the problems with it is that it was much more like a lawn sign than an actual targeted messaging campaign. Uh, what I mean by that is you put a lawn sign up on the street and you hope that your voters drive by it one day as opposed to a mail program where, yeah, most people throw the mailer out, but the reality is, is mail is incredible, like you said, for targeting. And in a campaign... Let's say we are a congressional district. We're Congressional District 44 in Los Angeles, okay? A very competitive congressional district, open congressional seat in L.A. If this is Congressional District 44, then I'm going to guess that this entire half of the room is not an eligible voter, okay? Not registered, not eligible to vote. Everybody past John in the back is unregistered. So we're talking about a registered voter population of this up here, and about a third of you are independents or Republicans who aren't going to be voting in my primary. And of the two-thirds of this table now, uh, we have the Latino population that's going to be voting for my opponent, the African-American population that's going to be voting for me if I'm African-American candidate, and we have in between my whole campaign, my entire, entire, entire campaign is focused on getting a group of swing Democrats, Democrats who could vote for either the Latino candidate or the African-American candidate, and that comes down to you. You represent the entirety of what I'm trying to target. So does it really make sense for me to run television ads to everybody or put a broadcast social media message out to everybody if I'm just trying to target the one guy in the corner? It doesn't. What makes sense is to mail the guy 30 mail pieces. It's a lot cheaper and it's a lot more effective. You know you're only hitting your target. Or, or you can mail 15 and run video just to him. But so what you can do. That's what <laughs> right? I mean, that's possible too. So what I'm getting to is that there's the, there is a way where's, to do this now. Carol? <laughs> there's a way to do this now with online. Yeah. What you can do now online is you can go to your PDI account or your voter file. You can pull down the file you need. You can send it up to Newstar or send it to you know, one of these companies. that's going to send it up and, and push it up to a matching company. It's going to find the guy's IP address of his computer or his cookie, or it's going to get his Facebook account, and it's going to load that up digitally just to him. And in, our, in the reality, it's in a campaign, you're going to load up 100,000 voters from your voter file that are your target of swing Armenian voters in Glendale, and you're going to target them with social media or with ads in almost exactly the same way that you would target mail and exactly not the same way that you would treat a lawn sign or that you would do old, old school social media. 
So the real benefit to campaigns is when you can actually go into your voter file, you've got your target list for your mail program for turnout, or in your field program for turnout, you've got your target list for your mail program for persuasion, you've got your targeted list of, of women that you're, that you're you know, pushing to vote with a particular message, and you've sliced and diced this all and matched your consultant, so he sliced and diced it all into this great campaign plan. Your people you're going to be hitting who vote early because they're those absentee voters that always vote the first weekend. Your absentee voters are going to vote the last weekend. You've got it all segmented out, and now for the first kind of election cycle we've seen, these things can be integrated with the shiny objects, and you can say, okay, I'm going to hit my Latino voter universe of uh, low turnout Latinos with that ad on the app or with that ad on their Facebook page. And integrating that is what matters and is what actually works this cycle. And, so. Paul, and, and the, the one asterisk I'll just put is, like, I think that's where everything is going and that's where everything needs to get. I will still say, since match rates are still not at 100%, like, oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's still the issue where it's like, if you want to reach everyone in, the, in that specific slice, an individually matched program will maybe get you half or two-thirds yeah, so or whatever. It, yeah, so it's so like what, you still have to I'm, I'm still with. Chinese by a lot right. of the mailers. You're not. Right. My, you're not yeah. <laughs> so um, what the, um, essentially what, what Brent's saying, and this is one of the ways that it works, if you call me up and you say, hey, I've got this campaign in San Diego, we've got these 73,000 voters we're trying to persuade with this message. I'll throw that into a vendor. That vendor will get you a match rate of 50 or 60% of them, and 50 or 60% of them will get Facebook ads. You don't know which 50 or 60% it is. It's all kind of blind because of the way the privacy works. But you know that voters are getting that message. Now, it could be argued that to make up for that shortcoming, you need to still have mail program. Or to make up for that shortcoming, maybe you do want to do broadcast television. However, a lot of what campaigns are doing, let's say it's that San Diego campaign. And this is a campaign message specifically to gay and lesbian community. Yep. And you've got your list of voters who have donated to No on Prop 8 and are domestic partners in San Diego, and you want to target them, but you want them to see this message. You don't want nobody else to see it. Right. Same thing with you know, other segmented populations. So definitely supplementing targeted stuff with yeah. a- atmospheric stuff right. is So we think, yeah, really layers, layers of yeah. you know, targeting. And well, and, and it's so sorry, so shiny widget technology guy. Um, <laughs> The 50 to 60% match rate. As we all have our iPhones up there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, that, that match rate used to be true. And, and that used to be true, and, and I'm going to try and break it down again because I've never written a line of code in my life. Um, that was true when, with companies who built their technology based on cookies. Does everybody understand what cookies are when we talk about computers? Okay, here's, here's an analogy I'm going to try out. Um, cookies are like a baton, right? You're running a relay race. The cookie is that little piece of code that helps connect people between different websites, right? So I go to Sacramento Bee. I pick up a cookie. I pick up the baton. Then I'm going to go to another site. I still have that baton. It's a little piece of code. They don't know it's Richard Lound, but they know that I was at Sacramento Bee, right? Awesome. Then I go to SFGate, and then I go to CNN, and then I go wherever. And everywhere I'm going, this baton, I'm... I'm Passing it all along each time. Problem. Problem is Steve Jobs, or was Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs decided that 
it probably wasn't very nice that we were making people pass these batons without them knowing. So he and Apple in general really drove the privacy hammer. And they got this little thing called the iPhone. And so what did they do? They start out with apps. They said, okay, if you're in an app and then you go to another app, there's no baton passing. Right? So every time you go to an app on your iPhone and you go to another one, there are no cookies exchanging. If you go to an app and you go to Safari, there are no cookies exchanging. If you open up your Safari browser, you close your Safari browser, there's no cookies changing. Right? Okay. And that was the whole digital world. We were like, oh, but it's no big deal because not very many people are accessing the Internet on their phones. Fast forward to 2016, right? And now we're getting to the shiny widget problem. Fast forward to 2016, more than half, this is crazy, more than half of all internet time is now spent on these things. The cookie crumbles, right? The baton gets dropped. So we, being a technology company, have to figure out solutions for this. And we, the collective we, not just our TBIQ, have figured out a solution for this, right? Where we don't have to rely on cookies to pass between these different apps, et cetera. And with that, we don't have to rely on cookies to match these kick-ass voter files, right, and really in-depth analysis of slicing and dicing audiences. We don't have to match them to cookies. So the cookie match rate, and it gets, it gets matched on an IP address. Every single device that connects to the Internet has to have an IP address. It's required. It's kind of the basic tenets of the Internet, right? So with that, we're seeing match rates 90%, 95% up. Why? Because everything that connects to the internet has seven IP addresses. So um, I hope that made sense. Well, and I'm, I'm glad technology. the match rate is up um, because yes. I, I still struggle with it when right. I am talking to clients. And Absolutely. like I said, I, I, I think that when you do look at the national elections and they have so much money that they can test these things but uh when as you're getting into a smaller office uh it becomes more of a challenge of prioritizing your budget and knowing that you're actually going to talk to a voter versus potentially uh, talking to a voter but i do think that it behooves consultants and and the industry to figure out how do we integrate the technology because this new wave of, uh, of voters that, that is being born right now and I, I know I see my nieces and nephews uh, that are they can't speak and they can take pictures with their iPhone um, you know and so the question is how do we integrate that um, and and, uh, and engage a new subset of, of voters into that hey Matt are you still awake over I here I still am I feel kind of like uh, you know, <laughs> Dr. Ben Carson nobody ever knows <laughs> Yeah. My, actually, my son and I would watch the debates together, and Adam would sit there and he goes, I really, that, I'm going to endorse Dr. Ben Carson. He seems like a nice guy. He also, also endorsed Tom O'Malley because he seemed like a nice guy, too. That didn't work out very well for him. Um, but um, the, the one thing I was thinking of as you all were talking is, is that it's very difficult for me sometimes to convince my clients to do certain things. Um, and this is true as over the years as things have gone on. I mean, I, I, my partners and I own, own an automated phone call company, right? Eight years ago, when President Obama was running, we made over 100 million calls throughout the country. Last year, I did exactly zero. Last cycle, I did exactly zero automated calls because I put it all in digital. That's what, that's what I tried to do, right? You get that last-minute money, and you don't want to lose a race by you know 500 votes. You, you got a lot thousand. much better value from that zero than the 100 million. Right? Probably, maybe, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but... Um, 
it's still difficult to convince clients, some, some of which are older, to um, be willing to spend their hard-earned money that they went out there and worked really hard on something that they don't see. When I send them a report and they say, hey, you got 2 million impressions, they're like, well, why send out mail? I just did 2 million impressions. I only have 5,000 people in my district or whatever. And so sometimes it's very difficult to be able to break that down in terms of why you want to invest in those sorts of things. And um, this has been true, actually, even before this was really an option. Clients want to advertise on the radio stations they listen to. They want to advertise on the TV stations they watch, right? Everyone sees it, they, and I get these all the time. They want the mail. I mean, I do a seed list for the hard mails, mail it to their their mom, their kids, whatever else, because they want to see something tangible to return. I need John and Ken, please. Whatever, right? <laughs> they, 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 they want whatever it is because it's part of their life, and they don't understand that it's impacting different people. And, and the, it, is it because their family's on the fence as far as voting? Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it is really difficult sometimes to convince candidates who may have an ad that will produce that they will never see, right? Because it's going to an audience that's not part of their world, not part of their social group, and convince them that this is how we're going to win this election by talking to these people, even though it will never come up on their computer. Yeah, Yeah. This is, uh, and and just so you guys know, this problem is not unique to the political world. This is a problem that every single person who has ever purchased advertising experiences the same, right? You put money on the table, what am I getting in return? And usually that's, I want to see the darn thing. I want to see it when it's out in the wild. So Bus, bus benches? Bus benches, right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, exactly. Can I tell, I see, can I I tell a quick story bench. really quick? I, I am told, this is true, I am told that Walter Mondale, when he was running for president of the United States, loved billboards. And he kept bugging his campaign manager over and over, I need billboards. So i got to put them all over the country. That's how I've been elected to the United States Senate. You need to buy billboards. Campaign manager was eventually sick of listening to Walter Mondale, and he bought three billboards. One between the Minneapolis airport and his house, one between his house and the campaign headquarters, the campaign headquarters, and the airport. Those, and he thought they were all over the country, but he bought three billboards, right? And yeah. I have to tell you, I've done similar things, right? I've, I've put up lawn signs near my candidate's home just to get them off it's my back, right? Good you client just do management. It. Client and, and, and so you, you need to, and, and, and when you seed mail, sometimes it's like, look, put it on ESPN. So if they want to watch the giant scores, they can see the spot. Whatever you got to do. I so. called Bernie Sanders today to ask for a lawn sign. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we'll take a break for some questions right now. Uh, Alex Padilla tells us that Motor Voter is probably going to, over the next several years, bring as many as 6 million new California voters onto the registration rolls. What role, if any, do you guys think the shiny new objects might bring to the table in terms of reaching many of those voters many of whom are minorities. I know you have challenges reaching minorities, new minority voters anyway, but will the shiny new objects help at all? Well, Paul's going to talk about this, but it also raises questions about the cost of campaigns. I mean, if, if we have turnouts like we had in uh, 2014, where you had an embarrassingly low turnout, you know, the cost per voter goes up significantly. So how do you actually get those voters to turn out? Paul? Yeah, so this is actually one of those places where um, this, not totally old school, but not necessarily the shiny new object, but kind of the middle ground of uh, technology is going to be helpful. Um, uh, first off, the, the new law has been, it, it is the law, but it isn't going to be put into effect probably for uh, several months to up to a year from now. 
The Secretary of State has to become HAVA compliant first, and then the DMV has a year to implement after the Secretary of State. You know, a miracle could happen. We could see it getting implemented sometime this summer, but it's not going to affect us in 2016. It will affect us in future years where you're going to see a growth in, reg in voter registration, and I think a six million figure is probably not uh, outside of what's possible. And to put in context, I think our voter registration at the end of this election cycle in November will be at about 19.2 million voters. And so you're talking right now at 17.1. So uh, we were talking about potentially, you know, 22, 24 million voters by 2018 or 2020. Now, one of the things that's going to be interesting is there's going to be a new voter category. You're going to have your Democrats. You're going to have your Republicans. You're going to have your uh, decline to states. You're going to have your American Independent Party people that think they're actually declined to states. And uh, you're going to have new party category called uh, undeclared. And that means somebody at the DMV was asked what their partisan registration was, and they're like, I don't know, nothing. And they didn't check one of the boxes, so they're undeclared. Um, what we're going to be doing aggressively is trying to identify these people. One is we have voter files going back to, to 2000. We're going to go through every voter file we've got and look for that person based on their name, their birth date, and to identify who they are and to append to their voter history record the history of when they voted in past elections in old registrations, no matter where they lived in the state. Secondly, we'll run them against the same, voter uh, same external databases that we have to identify whether they're homeowners, their ethnicity, um, other behaviors, commercial data sets, and everything else. Uh, we'll also be able to tell you if they live with people who are likely voters, who if they live with people who um, are registered and, and the, the partisanship of the people they live with and all other kinds of stuff. All of this is going to help campaigns take which is, what is this amorphous blob of potentially 6 million new voters coming in and give it shape, learn how to target it, and learn how to reach out to them. And uh, it is going to be, I think, a, a big challenge for us moving forward, but one that we're, we have the tools. Again, if we do the basics well, we have the tools to actually uh, really make use of this voter sets. And I don't know if there's a technology idea directly regarding well, Let me go to Matt, because Matt and I have talked about this before. I mean, we, we do kind of, even without the high technology, we generally know if somebody is a no-party preference voter in the city of Davis that they're likely on the left side, a Democratic Party voter or to the left of the Democratic Party. And in Roseville, well, a similar thing, <clears throat> they're likely a Republican. And my, my general rule is that the, um, the no party preference or decline to state voters largely mirror the rest of the electorate, right? If you just took them out and kind of spread them across the table, it's an overwhelming Democratic community, then they're likely the percentages mm -hmm. are about the same. And same with the Republicans for whatever reason. Many people assume that they're right in the middle, and I've never really believed no. that, but that's, that's kind of crazy. But um, uh, the one thing I was going to say in response to the question is, and I was expecting Paul to bring this up because he usually rubs my nose in it, uh, which is that um, <laughs> I predicted, and I, and I said out loud, <laughs> I said out loud, you tweeted all it. of these people who are registering to vote online, if they're too lazy to actually fill out the card and mail it in, I just didn't believe that they were going to vote. And I was wrong. I mean, it just, it just didn't make any sense to me. I just said, you know, I just can't see these people, uh, you know, making a difference in a huge way. 
And um, I was not actually set up for it, I guess, four years ago, right? So mm-hmm. yep. four years ago when that happened, I'm like, you know, these kids, they're registering all these college kids. Once again, too lazy to fill out a card. They don't, they're not going to be able to find a stamp to get their ballot. You know, I had all these other reasons that I'd mixed up in my head. But their turnout was phenomenally higher than all the new registered voters who actually did fill out the card. I still don't fully understand how exactly that happened, but Paul was right and I was wrong. And um, the one thing that I'll tell you is similar right now to what people – and I was in this political article here, this political article, Politico article earlier this week. A lot of people are predicting what Donald Trump's going to do to the electorate, right? I don't think a lot of people have a lot of good data to be able to predict exactly what's going to happen in November. It's a long time from now. He's totally a unique figure. Hillary Clinton is generally a known figure in terms of uh, people are really dug in on their view of her. He's doing a really good job at digging in at the same level uh, to be able to do that. But um, people make assumptions really early on and don't know that exactly how that's going to happen. But the six million new voters, my assumption is they probably mirror the rest of the electorate in California to a similar degree, kind of like if you take out the decline of states. And um, uh, and they're, they're, because we've recently done the online registration, my guess is that they'd be more similar to that universe than the others. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that for sure. Other questions? Um, I, I, I oh, just want to close that, that question off for you because I, I represent that segment that you asked about. And it goes back to what I said earlier. The mechanisms of voter engagement are outdated and need to be changed. Because I don't know how many elections in the last 20 years I've worked at where people will say in these targeted seats, because I've worked difficult seats, people will say, oh, you can't have a guy. He looks like a cop, and he's going to intimidate the voter. And I look at them and say, I don't see the voter here. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the truth. People are not not going to the polls because there's a guy that looks like a cop. They're never getting there. And, and again, when, when you're talking about the and I could speak from the Latino culture perspective, first of all. Um, when you become a citizen uh, in the United States and you have to take a test, you don't have to take that test in English. You don't have to speak English. So there's a huge segment of immigrant voters that are becoming citizens that can't read or write in English. And, you know, when you get behind that, that, that polling booth, um, it's you in the paper. And if you became a citizen and you don't know how to read and write, then how are you going to vote, you know, at a polling location? However, um, if, if, if you encourage that individual to, to vote by mail and they're able to have their children, I used to translate for my parents all the time, take them through the ballot. And, and some of the most active voters are immigrants for, for that reason. Um, if, if you engage them on that level, then, you know, they're more likely to participate. But again, I want to go back to the, the mechanisms of voter engagement that are currently being done and the expectation that a large segment of this population is going to go to the polling location. Uh, I think the definition of crazy is doing something over and over and over again. And if you look historically at the last 30 years, we haven't brought those numbers up. And Cesar Chavez was, was a phenomenal leader for a variety of reasons. One of the things is that he understood the importance of incorporating behavior into a culture to change it because you know Latinos are 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 very focused like a lot of other minority groups on the the structure of the family and the culture and so what I say and I did this in a particular race in Fresno recently a city council race that had never seen a woman represent it that had never seen a Latina or Latino woman Uh, the numbers in the primary my candidate was behind 
the, the, the first person running up by about 30 votes. And so I told my candidate, uh, we've done polling and you're going to go neck and neck until the general. But what we're going to do is we're going to change your universe. And so what we did is we took a less likely Latino voter. So we knew that these people were registered, but they weren't going to the polls. So we created a universe of about 500 less likely Latino voters. And we, within the primary and the general, switched them to become permanent absentee voters. And we GOTV'd them so hard. Now, her opponent, a week before the election, had his feet up on a desk and was telling people he didn't need to walk because his poll said that he was seven points ahead of her. On election day, she was behind 25 votes. And uh, the, news, the local newspaper asked her, you know, how do you feel? And she looks at me and says, how do I feel? And I said, I feel like we ran a strong GOTV campaign. And you tell them it's not over until the last vote gets counted. That uh, person is now the first Latina and the first woman to represent that city council seat by about 350 votes. Okay, let's to, get to, to answer your question in four words, oh. yeah. it's mobile. Yeah, that's where the minority population that we're seeing in the U.S. in general, uh, their number one way to connect to the internet is via mobile. That was more than four words. But okay, sorry. Yeah. So in the middle here, and then we'll go over to the left, or either way, whatever. It's up to Tim. Hey everybody. Um, just a quick question in, in regards to. I mean, you guys all have really great systems. Very beautiful systems. A lot of cool stuff you're doing. You're starting to sound um, like Donald Trump. But, yeah, know. I know, right? <laughs> They're huge. I, just, They're huge. I watch too much of that shit. <laughs> okay. Um, but really what I'm interested in is how do I cross-integrate my platforms? So the one thing I've run into trouble with PDI in the past is that you guys only use metadata to handle your variables rather than like actual variables that I can like set myself. So I'm never really in a position where I can take my, you know, RTBIQ data and, and put it back in your system. Um, when working with corporate marketing programs, it's a lot easier because, you know, I'm usually getting this information from opt-in platforms. I'm creating my own variables. If I want to put in, you know, an IP address, a Facebook user ID, um, I can do that and I could link it up with my person. but. Um, there's kind of this disconnect in, in making that whole cycle work, you know, making sure the fundraising matches up with the canvassing, making sure all that goes to the email marketing people and the mail people. And I mean, I'm really having trouble kind of seeing how I can do that with the systems that you all provide. I mean, I know that after exporting the information, whether it's a, a, a miscellaneous file in your system or just pulling the raw data, I could do my own matchups. But um, I really have a tr I really have trouble finding good integration solutions where I could just kind of set it once, or you know, for lack of a better term, set it yeah. and forget it. This is going to be really way too in the weeds for everybody else who's not currently a PDI user have their own account. But um, we should talk afterwards. But uh, PDI is a closed system. We now have our own email application. We've got our own fundraising application. We've got donor databases, volunteer management, on top of the voter file. And um, we don't allow exports anymore of anything. Uh, if you want to go get a raw voter file, go get it from another company because there have been so many problems in the last year with national voter data companies allowing data to get released. And so we don't ever want to be a part of that problem. We have a real commitment to voter, you know, voter data security. And so um, our system's closed. Um, but we can talk at another time where we can get you a training on some of the new features in PDI. Over here. Um, 
<clears throat> so we spend a lot of time talking up digital to our clients, telling them all the wonderful things that it can do and really blowing their minds with the targeting. Um, and then you sign them up. And how do you get to the point where, or, or, or rather, how do you then manage expectations for what it actually can and cannot do? And so my real world example is we have a client. Um, this, we're running a, a video campaign, a digital video campaign with them. Um, and we use it as an extension of television. It's branding. Um, they came to us and they showed us this piece of paper. Um, they called it their, their, I don't know, it was a sales form, but they had multiple sources and they tracked it to a cost per lead and a cost per sale. Well, I looked over this and they said, can you do this for us as well? I looked over the, the piece of paper, the form, and they were all lead gen sources. So of course you can track an online lead gen uh, source to uh, lead, cost per lead, cost per sale, because you get the data right there. You track it all the way through the process. It's really easy. Um, but obviously, that's not what we're doing. So how do you convince people that what you're doing is still valuable, even if it's a different metric than what they're used to seeing? Brent, do you want to take Yeah, let me, let me start. Well, so, you know, I think what's so, what's so wonderful, but also so infuriating about, about digital technologies is that there are applications throughout the life cycle of a campaign, right? And the metrics of success at different stages of the campaign are different. So to your point on the lead gen point of view, we're at a point of view in, or a, a point in time in most of our campaigns where the lead gen part, we're going after the base, right? We're just sort of, sort of like, who are the supporters? Who are the prospective donors? Who are the prospective volunteers? How much does it cost me to find them? How much does it cost me to bring them in? And then how much are they actually giving over time? What's my ROI now and in the future? So, you know, Senator Feingold's got... Uh, former and future Senator Feingold, uh, we hope, has got a very active prospecting program, right? And we're able to know through all these various sources, through Facebook, through Google, through these email lists that we're renting, how much, are we how much is it costing us to get a lead? How much are people giving right away once we get them in the door? And how much do they give after a week, a month, three months, so that we can make smart decisions about where to continue investing in, in lead generation? We've got a technology platform that we've developed that CRM that sort of manages all that and helps us make those decisions. That's great. But to your point, like that's one phase of the campaign. The persuasion phase of the campaign is a different phase of the campaign. The success or failure about your investments in sort of online advertising at that phase of the campaign is is different because then you're not you're not looking for donors, you're not looking for volunteers, you're looking for you know prospective voters. And I think that's to be honest with you, that's still where I feel like this stuff is the mushiest in terms of like is the investment smart? We still go back to relying on the fact that the targeting is better. Um, that we're able to sort of reach more people like in our universe without as much bleed uh, relative to things that are happening on, you know, on TV and in other channels. But are we actually convincing people to show up and vote? Like the measurement of that, or are we actually changing the poll numbers? I think, the, 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 you know, there's the sense that we are. There's also the sense that like in, in terms of a percentage of where people are spending their time, that if people are spending at least 20 and 30 and 40 percent of their time on the Internet, like our media spend and the media mix should sort of reflect that as well. But, but again, those are sort of these, these are sort of these big levers and sort of these big um, comparables that you're sort of looking at to help people make decisions about where to invest. Um, uh, you know, there have been some attempts at studies that show, you know, when you layer on online advertising, how much do you move the needle? How much do you actually get people's, you know, change people's propensity to vote? Um, but I, I, you know, look, I, I would say you could put the same argument to the TV folks too and say, well, like, you know, how much do we really know? that the marginal dollar on TV is getting more people to the polls. Do you actually know? And we know um, that it isn't. 
Right. And so, right? And so, like, so it's like, you know, I, I think, I think. Except cable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to some extent, you know, we, we have the burden, because we have all this data, people's expectations are we should be able to measure everything. And, and we can to some extent. But I think you can also put the question around to other people and say, well, you know, show me these days, not what happened 10 or 20 years ago, but show me these days what's happening with TV. Show me these days what's happening with direct mail. Are you actually getting more people to the polls through your channel? Um, and let's ask the question of everybody and not just of, of digital. Um, because, uh, again, I, our sense is it does. Um, but, um, you know, people are still using, you know, old, uh, uh, you know, assumptions about how many points I need to spend on TV to move poll numbers a certain amount. We don't have the same real comparable in, in digital. Um, so, that's, so some things are very measurable. I think some things are squishier, but I think some, some, some things are squishier for everybody, no matter what channel you're in. So last question over here, and then we'll go to closing comments. Um, Two-part question, really. Um, with the no, I said one question. <laughs> one person with two questions. Um, with the, I mean, digital's gotten better and better each, each cycle, and I swear in 2014 it was like the bucket of mailers, that it was just each, before the primary, it was like, okay, I have 200 pieces of mail, and they're all in the bin and whatever, and for the general election, it's even worse. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's mail is stopping. Do, are you seeing candidates or initiatives or anything moving away from mail? Or is it going to be TV was going to scale back and then in 20 years we're going to finally lose the direct mail? Yeah, I mean, it's, mail is dead, long live mail. Exactly. It, it just it won't go away because of its targeting aspects, you know? Um, and email is definitely alive. The end yeah. of every month is just miserable. Exactly. But yeah, less for persuasion, more for like, you know, it's yeah, not as a persuasion tool, but as like a fundraising and mobilization tool. Yeah. yeah. And I see, I see, depending on the age of my candidate, more the younger ones are more willing to put the money into digital advertisement as opposed to the older ones. Totally agree. Yeah. And the other question is like the the poll register, voter registration reset in California, where there's less. It seems there's for a gentleman at the end, there's less and less Republicans and more independents and more decline to states. Do you see the Republican Party in California moving to an open primary? Or party it's changing our primary system to allow and accommodate for these declined states and undeclared? You know, the, the, the probably most voters out there would say, well, of course. In fact, I got a picture from a um, client of mine whose son is a, um, a declined state voter took a picture of the, the, the sign up, the opportunity to be able to get a presidential ballot for somebody else and client was furious because the Republican Party clearly had, had you know, the, 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 actually the accusation was the elections officials were screwing the Republican Party, right, that they weren't on there. You know, you've got to fix this. I'm like, well, you know, that's actually been a choice. I, I don't know what the Republican Party will do long term about that um, and whether they'll choose to do it, but they're, within the party, there's some people who are very purist about that, and so I don't know that that's going to go any, away anytime soon. Although this presidential election, they may yeah. change their mind. You know, just saying. Yeah. Okay, well, let's go ahead and, and do some closing comments. We had one question from oh. Comcast. It'll be about cable. Oh, it's, it's a cable question. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say that the, the, the death of TV has been greatly exaggerated yeah. tonight to some extent. Yeah. Um, it, it just you know we all knew this technology onslaught is coming and so we've worked with Paul at PDI for several years now and we've got every cable zone in in the in PDI file so you can pull counts by cable zone we even did a study with PDI where we we took about 
four million voters, matched, and our match was about 50%. And so you, we now have, I can give you data, because I paid for it, on what voters are watching. I can tell you what Democratic women are watching in Berkeley, and I can also tell you what Latino voters are watching in, uh, in Fresno. So we, we are, TV is really trying hard to adapt to sort of, um, you know, getting to each voters. We're not at that addressable stage yet. The te- te- technology is a little gangly, but we're, we're, we're getting more nimble. So, you know, talk to Paul or talk to me. No, TV's that's still good. definitely true, and I'm somebody that watches most of my TV on my laptop in my bed in the morning. You know? <laughs> but, you know, it, it is connected to my uh, Xfinity Comcast account, and I do see ads, so... Okay, so with that, let's go ahead and do Tom, a bit. Can I ask just one quick question? Yes. On the, uh, on the emails, I wonder, how do you get fundraising emails past my Gmail spam filters? Yeah. How, yeah. As I well, understand it, the filters are supposed to work if you have no previous relationship, and yet they come in out of the blue. Yeah. I think I must have got 15 a day from Julia Brownlee. Yeah. Um, yes. How does that work? Well, I'd say it depends. To be honest, it depends somewhat on the platform and the relationship that the email platform has with all, all the ISPs. A lot of the technology we use uses a software service from IBM called IBM Marketing Cloud, and they sort of have individual relationships with the gatekeepers. A lot of this stuff is still very human-driven, where it's like, hey, we've got a block on Comcast. Sorry, not Comcast, because Comcast would never block our email. Uh, but we have a block with Hotmail. Uh, right? And so there, there are humans that are sort of gatekeeper managing it, and we've got email systems that are sort of man- and, and basically going, calling Hotmail and say, hey, what's the deal? Like, we've just, you know, this is really Barack Obama who's sending this email. Why are you blocking Barack? So there's still like some human sort of gatekeepers and technology there. I mean, look, it's, it's a fact of life that, like, it, you know, each incremental email is doing less and less. But the problem is there's still such a volume of email and so many people, everyone is on email that it's still sort of getting, getting results. But, so. but can companies pay Gmail, for example, to avoid mm-hmm. the spam filter? I mean, I don't know if you can necessarily... They're indirectly. They're, yeah, I mean, they're hire a good company right. that has the relationship <laughs> right. to get the mail the through. Gatekeeper. Yeah. I mean, it's a real pain in the ass for me. I mean, I've got over 9,000 subscribers to the Nooner that are all positive subscribers. Right. And people sit there and say, I didn't get my neuter today. Right. I'm and you have to ask it them. It was your ISP. It yeah, right. Yeah, and you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you have to say, make sure you mark me on the not spam list. And, but, but even for them to see that email means at some point it was not spam. I mean, if it's spam the whole time, they may never see the thing that yeah, says mark I, I fought with AT&T for a couple of weeks last right. month. Right, but it's it's for largely no it's largely there. There, are, you know, if you have a right, to the uh, a technology provider that has enough, uh, you know, people who can manage the relationships with ISPs, they can sometimes break the break the blockades. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, Brent, go ahead and let's uh, start off the sure. closing comments. Just a couple things. Just we may not have talked about these. Some of the things that at least I'm thinking about in terms of kind of what's new and what's what's possible. Um, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a trend, again, to, on the video side online to things that are more casual, more authentic, and more personal. So, you know, um, the, the slick presentation of a 30-second spot that you might see on TV, uh, I think people are looking for something that feels more real. I mean, this, you know, especially when you look at Snapchat, Facebook, people are sharing their own video content, and it's me with a phone on a panel, you know, doing a selfie and talk, you know, whatever. It's like people like are Ted used- Cruz's wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's the way people are communicating on social media person to person is with these like not mass produced, but very personal, very authentic videos. And I think, you know, candidates um, are adjusting to that. The highly produced, highly slick, whatever online doesn't really work. It has to feel real, has to feel authentic. That's what's kind of great about 
Snapchat and some of these other platforms. So people, I think, so you're going to see more of that. You don't need to mass produce something and spend a lot of time on production value. It needs to be timely. It needs to feel real. Uh, and so I think you're going to see more of that this cycle. Um, social media for advocacy. Um, you know, we've been doing a lot more of this on with some of our public affairs clients where, you know, it used to be you're trying to run campaigns that are like email your legislator or make a phone call. And that stuff's all fine, but nobody in the public knows what's happening, right? The, the, your, your member of Congress, your legislator, is keeping tabs on numbers. But what we're seeing is much more powerful is, uh, you know, advocacy via Twitter or advocacy on someone's Facebook page where the public shaming is happening. So people can see that not only, you know, this is a big deal because 100 people posted on Congress member so-and-so's wall or 50 people tweeted at so-and-so. Like, it's, it's a public forum where the advocacy is happening. And I think it doesn't take as much, you know, we get clients all the time. It only takes a few posts on a Facebook page or a few tweets at somebody to get, like, a staffer's attention or to get the member's attention. Um, and so I think there's a lot in this sort of space of figuring out on the Twitter and Facebook side, on the advocacy side, how to get people's attention um, that's at least worth, worth looking at. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, last thing I'll just say is I think this gets back to some of our mobile uh, conversation. Location-based advertising. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to do some very creative things. We were working on um, uh, a development project uh, for the San Francisco Giants, the Mission Rock initiative that passed in San Francisco um, last November. And I, I'm, you know, you, you always have those moments where you think of the woulda, shoulda, coulda. Man, I really should have done this or recommended this. You know, the, the fact is the ability is there that if anytime you're walking or driving by the ballpark or walking or driving by the neighborhood to have an ad pop up that says, hey, see that parking lot, you know, behind the right field wall? Wouldn't it be great if that were like a neighborhood and a park and waterfront as opposed to a big parking lot? Um, hitting people in the right moment at the right time because they're physically in proximity to something because you know where they are. Um, you know, it's really powerful. We were, we were doing a, um, a presentation to a, uh, an organization that's got a bunch of parks, and they were trying to figure out how to communicate the value of all these parks across their city to the, to the residents. Well, what if you did like a location-based mobile ad campaign where every time you were near this beach or that playground or that community center, that senior center, whatever, uh, an ad popped up that reminded you that that location that you're walking by right now, by the way, is, you, know, you have to balance the creepy factor with the, with the targeting factor. But there are certain things that just like hitting people in the moment because they're, they're geographically there or just something's registering at the time and you're reinforcing that at that time. The mobile location-based sort of advertising gives you that opportunity in a way that we haven't always had in the past because we were relying on where somebody lived, but maybe not where someone is like right now. Uh, and so I think there, it opens up a whole new set of opportunities for how you reach people with a, with a message that resonates. So anyway, lots more, but just a few other things that I thought I would mention is what we've seen coming down the pike. Thank you, Brent. Minnie. Uh, and I like that Brent brought up the Snapchat because I Snapchatted right before Snapchat. we started this panel. And can I see a show of hands on how many people, A, have used Snapchat or know what Snapchat is? Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there's my point is that uh, Snapchatting speaks to a younger generation of people. Um, and it does because it's easy and it's personal. And so I think that um, when and, – and I think and I hope that it happens in my lifetime. Why are we able to vote for American Idol? on a phone, but we can vote for our president. You, you know, I think that when we simplify the process, that will engage young voters. 
And so, again, you talk to the culture of the young voter. And then I also mm-hmm. think that uh, in, in my lifetime uh, that there will be a switch of voting that will happen mostly at home. Um, again, going back to the Latino culture, uh, we all get together on Sunday. If you're near your grandmother's or your mother's house, you go to church and then you go and eat. And I think that um, there's a lost generation of people like myself that never benefited from having a parent take them to the polling location and show them how to vote and why voting is important. And that as uh, as people really re-register into permanent absentee voters and they start to incorporate it into their habits and what they do, that they're gonna, there's going to be a new subset of younger voters that are going to understand the importance of voter engagement. And so I think that all of this technological stuff is great because it, people will be able to register on their tablets or on their phone. Um, and uh, once you streamline the process and make it easier, then we're going to see higher participations. Thank you, Minnie. And I, I go to uh, the Spanish language Catholic Church to eat, and I skip the whole service part. But <laughs> great part about my neighborhood, <laughs> Richard. Nice. Um, I guess the things I I, I want to say in conclusion is first and foremost, nobody's born knowing this stuff, right? This whole technology thing. I didn't know anything about this till I got into it and asked lots and lots of questions. Um, it's in, uh, so I went to San Diego State. All right. We think of ourselves as Harvard of the West, but um, <laughs> um, go Aztecs. Um, and Sorry about that NCAA thing. I, you know, we got robbed, but we are going to New York. <laughs> we are going to New York. Um, we, we belonged in the tournament. My, my point is, and, and I sold television, so my point is, if I can learn it, you can learn it, right? You have to go in with, with that confidence, and it's a matter of finding the right people that will take the time to sit down with you, answer your questions, and at the end of the day, you either believe them or you don't, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's just human, human nature. Um, when you do sit down with these companies, I would implore you just to ask the question, are you built mobile first? It, it, this is coming from a non-technology person, right? And, and I'm not talking about representing RTBIQ. I'm just talking in general. The question is so important because the, techno- the base of technology is so different, and it all has to do with those cookies. If your technology was built, yesterday's technology, on cookies, it just doesn't work today. Plain and simple. And believe me, I see so many companies trying to spin themselves and pivot and do all these sort of things, but the base technology isn't built today, right? So just ask the question. If you don't like their answer, find somebody else who will answer the, answer the question. Um, and I wanted to give one little secret. We're all under NDA here, I hope. Um, going back to, uh, to your point about seeding mailers, I won't say who, um, but and, and this actually goes to your point as well with geofencing. So there are now clients, or advertising agencies, I should say, who find out the home address of their clients because companies like ours have tiled the world into 10 square meters. So that means if your phone throws off a GPS lat-long coordinate, we can hone it down into 10 square meters, i.e. a household, right? 
So if you want to make sure that your ad gets seen, whether by your candidate or your candidate's family, etc., I love that concept of seeding the mailers. You can do the exact same thing with digital. I'm not saying we'd serve a ton of ads to them. I'm saying maybe it gets served once or five times, but it's going to be seen by the right person. That's just a little takeaway. Um, and let's not forget the raffle. We have things to give away. Thank you. Paul. Um, so I think my main takeaway is that with technology and all of this, what you'd want to try to focus on is doing the right thing, doing the basics and doing them well. Um, and always starting first from the aspect of I'm doing a political campaign. A political campaign, like one of the things many mentioned was that you know, essentially these campaigns are like startups. It's like you've got to get off the ground. You've got to get running. You've got to get moving. You've got to be done. It's like you can't spend all your time figuring out a year-long plan. <clears throat> so you just kind of have to start moving. And, um, and political campaigns are so different than other communications. Like we are not advertising Pepsi where we want everybody to drink Pepsi. We're trying to target to a very narrow population. And one example I have, just a very real example, um, is in the Assembly District 31 right now, a special election, a very important election, where it's not just about a seat, but it's about you know, a, a Democrat versus a Republican and, and the setup to the June, June election. There's 170,000 voters in that district. And if you had a narrow amount of money to spend on trying to persuade those voters, you could have sent mail and information to all of those voters. And right now, 13,000 of them have voted already. So that's you know, 8% turnout or something. However, of the people that PDI has flagged as voting early, 40% of those people have already voted. So you have this situation where targeting in political campaigns is so imperative. And it's not just about going into AD 31, which has, you know, 400,000 people, finding the 170,000 registered voters, but then taking off all the dead people, taking off all the moved people, taking off the people who aren't going to turn out, identifying who's going to turn out, who's a Democrat or declined a state that's going to lean Democratic because they live in the Democratic part of town, not the conservative mm -hmm. part of town. Um, uh, when do they vote? How do they vote? And making sure that your political communication is hitting that. And so that's where taking the databases and then working with these guys on that targeting is super important and where you need to not view your campaign the same way that a car dealership or a soda manufacturer views their media campaign. Well, and most of us grew up in a totally different era of California politics, um, you know, where you didn't have 20, 25, 30 percent of voters voting a couple of weeks early. And so, you know, some consultants are still like, oh, this is when our mail has to hit. You know, it's like, well, yeah, you're mailing to people that have already voted. And so data is very important mm -hmm. and understanding this new dynamic. And it'll be an increasing dynamic. I, I wouldn't be shocked if within a few years we didn't join Oregon and Washington in having all mail-in ballots. And that changes the nature of campaigns. Matt. So I agree completely with Paul Mitchell in terms of what he just said. And he's never of, said that before. No, it's the first time ever. <laughs> lighting, lighting might strike me. Uh, but he's exactly right. This is really all about the use of technology for me is all about the idea of being able to target. And as it becomes better and better in terms of being able to pick people out, it goes from you know technology 
five years ago was banner ads, right? It's like, <laughs> might as well buy a billboard, right? You're buying the entire top of the Fresno Bee, and everyone who sees it sees it. But now it's almost it's almost like targeted mail, but on individual computers, individual people, different messages. You can run, you know, there, I'll have clients this, this cycle that will probably create five or six different digital ads to go to different digital audiences, right? And and the other part that's really important about this, and actually I'm surprised it didn't come up earlier, it used to be a really expensive process to produce a TV commercial or any sort of digital stuff. Now, for a few thousand dollars, you can cut a, several different versions of the same uh, and a good, relatively good quality. You know, I don't know if any is anyone filming anything anymore with actual real film. That just doesn't happen. And now the ability to be able to do it with a camera, or a cell phone, or whatever. Carol's sure, going to object here in a moment, but <laughs> well, it makes it makes your ability to be able to pick out people and deliver that message to one voter. I mean, Paul was pointing to Sam as the one guy who was going to decide the election, right? But it could be each individual people within the universe, which that didn't used to happen. And so um, now I think it, for the use of technology in terms of communicating and advocating positions, it's all about being able to identify those individual people. And if you can do that, the tool is really powerful. If you're just going to say, well, I want, I want banner ads on the top of the Fresno Bee, you're talking to a bunch of people who aren't registered voters or don't live in your district. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, panelists. I want to thank... Uh, Tim Foster, the executive director of Open California, John Howard, the editor of Capital Weekly, and Kathy Brown uh, for all of their work. Thank you. The Capital Weekly podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.